Hi, I'm Dave. I'm Dan. Dan's an enterprise sales director for a Silicon Valley software company. Dave's a serial tech entrepreneur, board advisor, and CIO. We come at things from very different perspectives. But we usually find a way to meet in the middle. Which is fortunate because Dan's my son. Welcome to Bridging Business and IT. Welcome back, everybody, to the Bridging Business and IT podcast. My name is Dan Burl. I'm here again with my co-host and father, Dave Burl. Dad, how are you doing? Good. How are you? I am outstanding. I'm thrilled to be back for episode number three, part one. Uh, we've got an awesome topic today. We're getting into the neuroscience. This is one that you've been really excited about. You've been geeking out on this for the last, gosh, while. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, geeking is probably an understatement. So I, I want to get us into it. Uh, and to do that, I'm going to kick off with a fast recap of episode number two to catch folks up to speed. In our last episode, we talked about two problems in enterprise IT. One specific one generic. The specific problem dealt with IT project failure rates. The fact that 70% overall and 95% of IT projects north of a million dollars in cost failed in a material way, either just as a material failure uh, where something majorly went wrong or as a complete write-off where the entire project had to get scrapped. The cost of this is somewhere in the neighborhood of $500 billion a year. And in the U.S. alone. In the U.S. alone. And three out of four of these failures are credited uh, with silence of something that's not being communicated at an important stage of the project. The generic problem with the, is with the inability of most IT departments to realize the potential of being the greatest accelerators of their business. You know, the evidence of this is that there is well-known and widespread CEO and user dissatisfaction with IT departments. The reviews are not good. And... And there's a tendency of IT to measure themselves with uptime and availability instead of the specific KPIs that matter most to advancing a business's strategic objectives. So we want to stress that we know that this isn't universal. This is not every single IT org. There's IT orgs out there doing incredible things um, and setting the pace. Um, but we know that this is prevalent. And, and we can't ignore these these rates of failure, particularly those in uh, the small to medium-sized business and small enterprise space defined as companies between $50 million and $3 billion in revenue per year, um, who don't have the deep internal resources and experience of doing major projects on a regular basis. So, as part of all of that, you know, we also introduced last time out the the thesis that we're talking about that these problems arise mostly from two really deeply held and kind of universally held assumptions that as a society we've tended to embrace so completely and frankly we've questioned so little we just take them as a given it's like gravity um there's just one little problem with these assumptions they're wrong um we and we've been beginning to realize that over the last 15 to 20 years. Um, Mark Twain was credited with a quote that, you know, 
after doing some research, I found out he apparently never said, but the line was, it's not what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. Well, the joke is these are two things, these are two things that just ain't so, uh, but we've taken them as a given and they've caused us a lot of issue. So today we're going to take a, the pretty deep dive into the first of those two assumptions. And the next week, next week, we're going to get into the second one. So, okay. All right. So I know there's a lot of uh, neuroscience discussion and discovery from the last 10, 15 years that we want to get into. Um, but, but, but set the stage for us. What is the premise of today? What's the big point and what's the takeaway you want to be? Okay. Here's the premise. Our brain doesn't work the way we thought it worked. We don't control our brains. Our brains control us. And that fact above all else is why three out of four enterprise IT projects are currently failing. And that's also why we're going to be spending this entire episode on neuroscience, because unless you understand what's really going on, you'll never be able to fix it. Now, you know, the good news is, is that there is a way to fix it. This isn't the first time in history, in the history of man that we've discovered new facts about how the brain works. And every time we've made one of those discoveries in the past, we've been able to come up with better approaches to accommodate what we can't control to drive better outcomes for everybody. Okay. All right. That's a great premise. I, I, I'm with you. And what I like about that setup is that um, you've also got the good news in there for us. So I'm looking forward to that. And I'm going to bring you back to that good news um, once we once we get through this. Yeah, you I'm know, not perpetually the, Debbie Downer on this side. Uh, well, yeah, and not not just that. I'm not accusing you of that. <laughs> but, um, I, you know, in our relationship, I tend to be the one that says, I, I don't really care what the cause was. I just want the solution. So yeah, I'm going to be bringing true. you back to that solution. To what the solution um, is. But you're adamant that we need to understand this cause, and I'm willing to go along on this ride with you. And uh, I'm, I'm going to be open-minded that there's something I can learn through this that helps me incorporate that solution, perhaps in a way that I otherwise couldn't if I just focus on the solution. So enough. All right, get into the background. Okay, so look, here's here's the reason why I am geeking out on this, so you say, because... Throughout history, when people haven't done what we think they ought to do, or they do things that we think they shouldn't do, we invariably assume the worst. Our knee-jerk response is to ascribe malice or stupidity or incompetence and then punish the people who didn't do what we thought they should, right? I mean, you've seen that plenty of times in the past. You, you know, leap to a conclusion, and then you find out, oh, well, maybe I overreacted. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll give you two examples of how this has happened over the course of the last just the last 500 years that I think are pretty germane. And I mean, for me, I think they're pretty shocking, right? So about 1487, if I'm remembering this right, there were a couple of Dominican friars in Germany who published this book on witchcraft. And I think that if I'm remembering this right, the title was A Hammer of the Witch. And basically what this book was, was how to identify and deal with a witch, which, you know, obviously this is a really desperately needed publication because you just can't have a bunch of witches running around, um, you know, running around the forest, putting spells on people all the time. So you needed to know how to spot these people and get away with them. Well, it turned out that the best way to spot a witch, you know, other than catching them flying on a broom, was to look for satanic possession. Well, nothing gave away satanic possession faster than somebody having a seizure. 
So hopefully, you know, alarm bells are going off in your head right now. So if you happen to have epilepsy or some other type of neurological condition, you were immediately assumed to be a witch. Now, that in and of itself isn't great, but the way that these two monks, these friars, said you ought to deal with a witch was even more of a problem. You had to burn them alive. Good so, Lord. Yeah, exactly. So the way to deal with a witch was to burn them alive. So here's... And a the, witch was somebody who had epilepsy? Who had epilepsy or seizure. And it was taken right from the Bible because anybody that was possessed fell down on the ground and it was a demon. It was in him and Jesus told the demon to come out, which is why these monks assumed that anybody that falls down on the ground and has a seizure must be demon possessed. And you're saying, that, I mean, you said this was only 500 years 500 ago. years ago. 1487, I think, is when this book came out. That feels way too recent for us to be... Uh, anyways. Uh, but, it, but it's still going. This is still going. So here's the point of this whole deal, is that when these guys wrote the book, it was right around the time that the Gutenberg printing press came out. So uh -oh. this book was widely circulated throughout Europe. You're kidding. Oh, no. Now, the real downside wasn't so much the fact it was circulated, but the fact that people worked on it or they operated based upon what they thought was the current state of knowledge. This was, you know, this was... The state of the art. This is how you're supposed to deal with witches. The historians are now estimating that be, over the next 100 to 150 years after that book was published, 100,000 innocent epileptics were burned at the stake throughout Europe. My goodness. Yeah. If that doesn't make the hair stand up on the back of your neck, nothing will. 100,000 yeah, people died in agony. Because a couple of monks thought it was a good idea to burn witches at the stake. Okay. Now, there, was, there, was a, there was a pretty big misunderstanding about what was actually happening in that scenario. Yeah. To put All it right. mildly, right? So the only thing that these poor people had that was not right with them was a brain that didn't work the way we thought it should. So today, you know, we obviously think that's barbaric. But, you know, if we had somebody with epilepsy today... Or somebody that had seizures today, you'd take their keys away from them. You wouldn't let them drive. But you, you're you not doing that to punish them. You're doing that to put guardrails around their behavior to accommodate something that nobody can control, right? You're just trying to keep them and everybody else around them safe. So that's an illustration from the Middle Ages. So you know, let's look at something a little bit more recent. Right. So 50 years ago, if a kid was struggling to read or they just flatly couldn't read, everybody would say, well, they're stupid or lazy or incorrigible and they would tend to get punished. I had a conversation about two years ago with a guy who was a Ph.D. in education. He was in his 80s at the time, but he was telling me the story. He was dyslexic a dyslexic who wound up getting his PhD in education. Hmm. And he was telling me the story about how badly abused he was and what his teachers had told his parents about how stupid he was because he couldn't read. And the poor guy just had dyslexia, right? So now it's pretty widely acknowledged that the condition for kids with this issue is dyslexia. It's just an issue that, in, that impairs the visual processing of information in the brain. So I'm sure, like this friend of mine that I mentioned, that, that there's all kinds of people probably on this podcast who went through hell as a kid being shamed and punished for something that they couldn't control. Now, you know, the good news is in really the last 20 to 30 years, 
we've identified what this is and we don't punish these kids anymore. We test them to see what's going on. And once we know, we change our teaching methods and we give them tools to, you know, once again, put guardrails around behavior that they can't handle on their own, that they can't control. So the point of those two illustrations is we're still following that same pattern of behavior today in our business and IT projects. Yeah. So you, there, there's, there's, what you're laying out is a continuum of learning more and more about how the brain works, how it operates, and then accommodating for the ways that it operates, either with medicine or with um, or with systems and processes in place to just understand. And um, the the pattern between both of those two that I also see, which I think is where we're going with this one, is that in both scenarios, once the discovery was made about what was truly going on. Um, the all of the uh, all the criticism or moral failing ascribed to those groups of folks just entirely evaporated. Correct. We, we stopped saying it was their fault. Correct. <laughs> it wasn't their fault. It was nothing they were doing. It was totally outside their control. It completely. And we, as a society, we're victimizing them because of it. Yeah. Yeah. All, all right. right. So, uh, well, I'm certainly glad that we're helping both groups of folks. Those are scary examples. The the dyslexic one certainly is something that I've seen in my lifetime. So, um, yeah, you have. So where's this going from here? So what's, so what's, we're talking about the current one that's happening in business and in IT projects. Okay. So the reason that I think this is such a big deal is because once again, we've had another series of learnings. And once again, we've identified a whole set of ways that we are treating people as if they've been stupid, lazy, incompetent, malicious, when the reality is that they're not. We're still applying the same sort of response pattern um, to something that we don't understand. So let me explain. Let me let me slow down for a second, take a deep breath and kind of get into this. So as I've mentioned in the past, I'm a PMP, right? I've done I've been running software projects for 30 years. The first step in any IT project is figuring out what you're trying to do. You know, what do you need? What are you trying to do? So what that means is you need to gather requirements. Well, when it comes time to gather requirements, we, everybody assumes that both the business and the tech team is going to fully communicate everything they need to share to arrive at a complete, accurate set of requirements. But what we're finding, again, through other research, this isn't related to neuroscience, but the, but the stuff we've been digging into on how well projects work and how often they fail, what we're finding is that at least 75% of the time, these projects are kicking off without complete and accurate requirements. In fact, it was interesting. I was just having a meeting last week with a guy that was also a PMP, project management professional, and he's done all of his career in healthcare IT. And he was telling me about a study that he read that said that 95% of all healthcare IT projects are kicking off without even doing a kickoff meeting. They don't even have a kickoff meeting where they get everybody together on the same page. That's one of the reasons that these requirements are being gathered properly. But when things eventually go wrong, as they invariably do, we start blaming the people involved for not trying, for not caring or being stupid or lazy. You know, we are metaphorically burning these people at the stake, just like we do with witches 500 years ago, and just like we did with dyslexic kids 50 years ago. Well, that's a deeply flawed and really counterproductive response. And that's why this episode's dedicated to digging into these discoveries so that everybody who's listening to this can start to understand the problem and do something about it. And again, before I dig in too deep on this, I want to 
echo what you said earlier. There's a big caveat here. I know this problem doesn't apply to every IT project or every organization, but it does happen a lot. And that's what we're trying to address. So please, anybody, don't bother to troll us saying, I'm not like this. I'm absolutely sure you're not. I'm sure that there are all kinds of people out there that do this great. But the problem is there's a lot of people that don't. Okay. So I understand the premise of today. Um, and if it's true that there's there's a discovery that's happened in science over the last few years and it explains uh, and accounts for some of the some of the IT project failures that we're seeing and and the result is that some folks are getting abused and careers are suffering and they're dealing with extra stress and pressure from bosses and people are getting people's tenures are being cut short because you know we're ascribing these these failures to something that was a competency failure instead of this this element of the brain that we just should be accounting for. Um, yeah, that's that's awful. So you know, I'm glad I'm glad that we're talking about. Thanks for laying it out. I'm with you so far, um, and I can imagine that uh, you. I actually I don't have to imagine. I know that at one point you were one of these executives. You held people accountable, yeah. And 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 I I know as your son, um, what it's like being around you when you're angry, and I bet it wasn't that fun for the folks that were involved. No, I mean, yeah, you know, it's embarrassing to even admit it now, but I mean, this is the reason I'm so passionate about this topic. I was one of those people that got mad, yelled, blamed others, and ripped them a new one for screwing up. Um. And when you begin to realize that it's not a function of competence, it's a function about the way that the human brain works, you know, that completely changes the dynamic. It completely changes your response pattern. All right. So I want to get into the, the details of the science here, but I've got one final clarifier question for you. Yeah. What? This discovery, the discovery wasn't specific to IT projects or even to business. No, not at all. It's generic. This is this is ubiquitous. This is the way the human brain works. And it's one of those things that we absolutely did not realize up until about the last 10, 15 years. And you've just realized that, you know, there were some light bulbs that went off for you as you were reading about the discovery, that there's just a lot of applicability to the work that gets done in IT projects. Is that right? Right. Absolutely. Okay. And if I were to put it into a headline, it's really this. There's a big problem and a paradox with experts. The greater the expertise you acquire, the more detail you forget and the less you're able to communicate what you know. Wait, hold on. Say that again. Okay. The, the greater the expertise you acquire about anything, the more detail you forget and the less you're able to communicate about what you know. Interesting. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I'm okay. with you. Well, I'm following the statement. Right. I'm, I'm trying to rationalize it internally and thinking about things that I'm an expert in that I might have a hard time communicating about, but but go on. Well, I'll give you a simple example real fast. You know, I'm, I'm sure we'll have others as we go through it, but you're a great surfer, right? Could you explain to somebody how you get up on a surfboard? Can you explain to somebody the different ways that you take off on a wave depending upon the size of the wave or the type of board you're riding? I'm I'm trying to work through that in my brain this second, and I can I can sort of see myself doing it, but the um, the mental it, it's a mental image. It's not so much a a step by step process. It, it, that no, I wouldn't know how exactly where to start. I'd have to really sit down and think about how to describe that to somebody. And it would be a long exercise to be able to describe it to get every single aspect of it. Yeah. yeah okay, okay. So that's expertise. 
that's difficult to communicate. Okay, that's one illustration. We'll go back to others. But so the point is, why does any of this matter? And it matters because, as I alluded to, the first thing you do when you're gathering requirements is you turn to the executives, the process owners, and the subject matter experts who know the system you're working on the best. And whatever they tell you, you almost always take them at their word because, hey, after all, they're the experts. Yeah, right? why wouldn't I take them at their right? word? Why wouldn't you take them at the You don't know. You just you trust these guys. We don't put any guardrails, any any type of parameters around the process at all because we haven't realized we needed to. So, I mean, I'm going to get really specific with this. And this happens um, in every project that is managed by the PMBOK. So, for those of you that don't know, the Project Management Institute, PMI for short, has got this thing called the Project Management Book of Knowledge. It's on, I think, iteration six or seven at this point. I've kind of lost track. Um, it is the worldwide gold standard for project management. And it has a very specific process called out. There's 47 in total, but process number 5.2 is dedicated to spelling out how you collect requirements. Well, what's interesting about it is that process gives you a whole bunch of ways to ask questions about project requirements. In fact, I think it's like 13 or 14. You know, things like here, you can do a questionnaire, you could do... um a Delphi technique, you could do a focus group. Uh, but they're all generic because the project management book of knowledge, the PMBOK is generic. It was originally created in the aerospace and defense industries for building planes or tanks or ships or something like that. It's used very commonly for creating skyscrapers and buildings. It's also been used for IT. But the problem, because the PMBOK is generic, the process tells you, it tells you all these different ways to ask a question, but it never tells you which questions you need to ask. It assumes that the people running the project will know what questions to ask. And the problem is a lot of those people don't. And without that guidance, without any of those guardrails in place, the conversations that the people running the projects and the business analysts have with these experts to gather requirements, they're not delivering everything we need because the brains of those experts are keeping them from even remembering what they know, much less communicating it. So the irony of our current situation is that the SMEs, the subject matter experts, the people in which we place our trust, the oracles that we turn to and assume will know and share with us everything that we need to know to execute this project successfully are the very people who are least physically capable of telling us everything about the process that we actually need to know to make that project successful. Mm -hmm. Again, the irony is just incredible with this. Okay, so I want to get into a few examples of this, but but actually, before I do, I just want to revisit sort of a foundational principle here that I think we might be glossing over slightly. We're talking about the fact that, I mean, you just said that IT projects start with requirements gathering, and right. that is a process of going to engage the experts within a business. Correct. Can I just ask as a, as somebody who's not been an IT professional myself, are are there any scenarios where IT projects um, happen and you don't need to go interview the business? Are, are there requirements that get set just within IT, by IT, or, or without experts? 
there are some words to, to lesser extents than others where it, where you're automating an existing process. Like if you've got an enterprise and you're trying to put in place a new ERP system yeah. because you have a known, you know, for instance, order to fulfillment process, right? You're, you manufacture tennis shoes and you know, you, the way that you take in a tennis shoe order and the way that you build the tennis shoe and the way you ship it out is all pretty static. So that's one place where you're going to need to lean much more heavily on what the specific requirements are for that system. So any place where there is a process that is well-trod, well-known, well-identified, and has been used for a long time, that's where you're really going to need the experts. Places where you probably won't need the experts as much, but where you will still need them, or you'll at least still need some input from them are places where people are turning to you for more agile methodologies where they're mm. developing things um, that have never been tried before so mm. people are coming up with a uh, you know, good illustration you know building an app for a drone to deliver a burrito to your house yeah right you don't have that process it doesn't exist today so you still probably need the business's input in terms of you know what are the parameters that a, a flying burrito buyer wants to have yeah. in their user experience, but it's not certainly not as deep as the illustration that I gave you earlier. So, so even in that even in that illustration, um, perhaps so may, maybe we're not calling that person the expert or subject matter expert, but the user, but they're the but somebody is the visionary. Correct. If you're inventing a new way of doing something, a new way of delivering burritos that's never happened before, right? Somebody's got that vision. So theoretically, there's still an expert on the vision, that's even right. if they haven't done that thing before. That's right. And so somebody still needs to be interviewed. Somebody still needs to get those requirements down on paper in an accurate, complete way. Correct. To fulfill I fulfill the vision. One of the things that I've often talked about with folks when they debate, you know, the difference between, you know, something like a, a traditional waterfall or a, a hybrid model versus pure agile or scrum models is that the reality is um, we're not talking about how you build software here. We're talking about how you understand the business. Mm. That's a really critical distinction, mm -hmm. right? I mean, understanding the business is not the same way you build and deliver software. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because what we're talking about in the premise is that the goal here is to empower IT teams to accelerate their, to be that change agent within the company that has the highest leverage, that has the potential Correct. to help accelerate the business objectives as fast and as far as possible, more than any other department. Correct. And if you're, you know, if you're a business in the, in the size range that we've identified here, you've more than likely set some priorities for the year at the company level. Right. Things you want to do. And we're talking about an IT team that is capable of effectively advancing the ball on those initiatives, on whatever those priorities happen to be. And in order to do that, they're going to need to go get requirements from the folks who set the priorities, right? Correct. But you know, there's a there's a really key distinction when you, we talk about IT teams. I think it would be very easy to get you know, very myopic and just think about software engineers. Okay, we're really not talking about just software engineers. We're also talking about the whoever the project manager is. Uh -huh. So the IT PMO. The project management office, it's, this is germane for them as well, as it is with the business or the process analyst. So when we talk about IT teams, we're talking about a much more inclusive set of skills. So, you know, software engineers, database administrators, you know, people that do configuration, UX folks, 
you know, business analysts and project managers. So we're not, I, I want to be clear that that team's, a bit, when we use that term, we're talking about a very inclusive set of people. Yeah. Well, I can even just personally, I'm more likely to be somebody within a business who's got the requirements than the person who's gathering the requirements. And I certainly want to make sure that if I've got requirements to share and I'm translating a vision to somebody that's going to help build something that's going to accelerate that vision or help me hit that priority, I want to make sure they get all the information they're going to Absolutely. need to execute that properly the first time around. I mean, in our last episode, we talked about the cost of getting it wrong. Right. It, it's astronomical. Yeah, it's massive. When you compare it to just taking the little bit of extra time and effort to get it right the first time. I want my vision executed right the first time. Yeah, yeah, and that's a really great point. And that was an oversight on my part of what I just made when I talked about the IT team. It really includes the sales and the pre-sales engineers, the people that are doing discovery in terms of figuring out. It, yeah, it's not just the technical team. It's not just the project managers. Business. It is also the people that are selling that service. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we talk about the importance of discovery. great discovery in our world. Yeah, I mean, no how critical question. it is. Um, asking the right questions. Um, and we've got methodologies and we, we build skill around that. But um, I think I think you're going to be approaching this from a, a slightly different perspective than we do. Okay, so let's get back to the, the, the discovery itself. The idea that the more expertise I have, the more difficult it is for me to share and explain that expertise to somebody else in a way that they can document it and use it and use it to inform project requirements. Um, you, you mentioned the surfing one. What other examples from like a day-to-day -day world can you share that will help people understand this? Well, my favorite one is this, tying your shoes. So everybody can tie their shoes pretty much in their sleep. Yes. But I'm can, pretty sure I can do that. Yeah. I mean, I, I know for a fact I've done it in the past. You know, you get for a business trip at four o'clock in the morning to catch the flight. You try to yeah. put your shoes and socks on in the dark. And yeah. I remember the times that I got to New York and realized that I was wearing one black sock and one blue sock. Yeah. Not That's every, aside from the point. Yeah, aside from the point. But, <laughs> but tying yeah, but those things happen, right? Uh, but tying your shoes is a wonderful illustration. Imagine trying to write down the script for how you tie your shoes, not just in a way that another person could do it, but in a way that a computer could do it. Yeah, I, uh, I have absolutely no idea where I would even start with that. Yeah, I, most people don't. It's, it's, in fact, it's funny when I, when I wind up talking to people like that, they wind up with this glazed look over their face. It's like they, they mentally lock up, you know, pretty much like you just said. It's like you short circuited their brain. They don't even know where to start. Um, this is an exercise that has been used for industrial engineers for years. It's been taught in, in schools. And I've got one f good friend that, um, she talks about when, uh, she was given the assignment as an undergraduate at the University of Illinois, you know, one of the better in industrial engineering schools out there. And um, it took her like two weeks to write this thing out in about 10 pages to get the whole thing together. You know, something that seems so incredibly simple is actually fairly complex. And to just put a cap on that story, yeah. if you were talking to a business person, all you had to do is ask the question, what do you think is more complex, tying your shoes or documenting your order to fulfillment process? Yeah. Yeah. So if it can take you 10 pages in a couple of weeks to document tying your shoes, what do you think you're dealing with with your, you know, your business processes? So anyhow. All right. That, I think that gives you an illustration. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we have the headline. 
The headline here, what you're sharing is that the discovery, the groundbreaking discovery we've been alluding to over the last 10, 15 years that you've stumbled on through a lot of different readings and, and studies and, um, and experts, uh, is that the more expertise you have, the harder it is to communicate. Um, why is that the case? What, what, what's the, what's the, the subtext here? Well, to fully explain that, I think I need to sort of start by explaining what our brain is and what it isn't. And this is all part of the things that we've learned and we've been able to pick up over the last 15, 20 years. So first of all, our brain really is a computer that runs on electricity. And electricity is always in short supply. There's never enough of it to go around. Our brain has got multiple system layers that works that work at the conscious and the unconscious level. So you can think of it as the difference between uh, running Microsoft Word on top of an operating system. Uh, our computer, our brain has got finite processing power and storage capacity. There's only so much. Um, there's only so much that you can do with the processor, and there's only so much disk space around. It's got a dynamic pattern recognition and interpretation engine. So, I mean, that's really what our brain is. It's an interpretation engine that's constantly adapting itself and reconfiguring to help us make sense of and respond to our environment. Um, okay. So, so none of that feels too controversial or groundbreaking. I mean, but basically what you just said is that th there are some physical constraints on the brain. That's kind of what I'm hearing. Right. That makes that, sense. That we hadn't fully appreciated before. But here's the thing that the brain is not. It's not this fixed hardwire system that's casting concrete at the time that we're born. What do you mean by that? Well, we've always been told that you're born with all of the neurons you're ever going to have. You're born with all of the synaptic passages and circuitry that you're ever going to have. We now know that that's false, that if something was lost due to injury or illness, it was lost forever. And we've now learned that the brain is capable of dynamically rewiring itself. Hmm. There are actually studies out there that are show that it's not only capable of rewiring itself for senses that we have now, but for senses that we might be able to add on in the future. There are people out there in labs at Stanford that are able to start seeing through their back. I'm not going to get into all of the mechanics as to how that happens, but they are actually able to start visually processing information based upon sensations that are hitting their backs. Hmm. I mean, really remarkable. That's all for today, folks. That's the end of part one. Next time in part two, we're going to be digging into seven recently discovered ways our brains conspire to sabotage every detailed conversation we ever have. These saboteurs aren't intentional. We have no idea we're doing it. They're not done on purpose, but their effect is exactly the same. They impact every area of our lives, both personally and professionally. So I think it's a worthwhile, it's going to be a worthwhile lesson. We hope you'll join us. Talk to you soon.